And now, the Street Photography Magazine podcast with your host, Bob Patterson. Welcome back. And with us this week is Michael Ernest Sweet. He's been with us a few times. We even featured him in the magazine a while back. And uh, Michael's a pretty interesting guy. He does a lot in the street photography world. He was even in the uh, the new street photography movie called Fill the Frame. And he just seems to appear everywhere. He's, he's also in the movie about Gary Winogrand, which is pretty interesting. So anyway, Michael, before we get into things, why don't you, for those who don't know you, tell everyone a little bit about yourself and what you do. Well, that's always a hard question. Um... In some ways, I could talk about myself, I suppose, quite at length, but uh, what would people actually be interested in hearing? Um, I, I, I'm Canadian. I lived in uh, Montreal for a long time. I did my early street photography work in Montreal, a lot of it. Um, I've been living since 2015 in New York City, and I'm still practicing uh, as a street photographer, although not as um, much, I guess, during the pandemic. Um, for a few reasons, and uh, and I also do a lot of writing, um, and, and and criticism and book reviews and things uh, to do with street photography genre. When I'm not doing my day job, which is teaching, um, I teach at a private psychiatric uh, school, uh, prep school here in New York City. So that's you know about it, I guess. Well, that's quite a bit. I wonder you don't have time to shoot as much. <laughs> so what, why don't you tell us about this movie, Fill the Frame? Fill the Frame um, is uh, a movie that I got involved in sort of almost by accident. Um, I, I think, you know, you were asking about how, how, you know, one ends up in various movies. And I think that, um, you know, someone sees you in one and then invites you to the <laughs> next one sort of, as a lot of things happen in life, I, I feel. So, but, you know, I think Tim was originally planning to maybe invite me uh, in and then we lost contact. Uh, I was out of street in, in one of my moments when I was out of street photography uh, on a retirement <laughs> stint. And uh, so, so it, it didn't happen. And then the movie was, um, you know, going into post-production basically. And uh, Tim and I reconnected again and talked about a few things and then decided that I would enter as a, um, you know, more of a commentator in the film, commenting on the work of the people that were featured and also trying to contextualize both what the people that are featured in the film are, are doing and how their work fits into a larger um, body of, of people, in particular, some of the, in particular, some of the masters. So... I was there as sort of a talking head and, uh, and, and it's interesting. I'm, I'm getting more involved in that. Um, you know, the old saying that if you can't, you know, do the thing, become a critic. <laughs> and, uh, I don't know, uh, how well I do the thing, but, um, I, I think it's been a lot of fun and interesting to not always be taking photos and not always to be looking at my own work, but to be looking at the work of others with a very critical eye and then having to sit down and actually write about that work um, has been hugely beneficial to me as a visual mm -hmm. artist. And I, and I hope I also bring something useful to, to those people in terms of commenting on their work. I try to be nice most of the time. Um, yeah. 
and so it you know it's it's uh it's a great second game to be involved in and the first big jump into that was in fill the frame so writing about other people's work how does that help your own i think that um you know, simply put i think it's looking you know when you when you're reviewing let's say let's take a book review for example someone sends me their book of photography and i'm sitting down and i'm looking through it and i'm thinking what am i going to say about this book and i try not to you know be too formulaic or repetitive in mm-hmm. the way you know so many book reviews today are just absolutely terrible um i think there's a real lack of critics you know of genuine criticism in street photography uh, don't get the word confused mm-hmm. with you know the act yeah, of criticizing exactly. um there's a lot of that yeah. out there oh, yeah. right but how many people um you know, have some exposure to and in, in history in art, generally, photography more specifically, and then very specifically sort of the history of street photography and are familiar visually with a lot of the people who formed that movement. Um, and then sit down to write a book review. I, I don't think too many, right? And I'm not certainly saying I'm the world's biggest expert on any of those things, but I have exposure to all of those things. And I've been writing for a long time. I've been writing. I had my first newspaper column when I was in grade nine, and uh, you know the local town paper where I grew up. But I've been writing and thinking about how people read my writing most of my life. Um, so when you combine sort of those two things, I think that I try to write in a way that really brings out genuine criticism in the sense that it's not all positive. It's not all glowing. It's not just a narrative of what one finds Mm -hmm. in the book. Um, And when you really look at someone's work in that way and try to pick out some of the faults and some of the thing, you know, places where there's room for growth in their work, according to me, and then try to, you know, articulate that in a way that isn't just mean or sensational, you really come to, I think, learn how to, look at photography differently, including your own. You're, you look at it with a much more critical eye. You're detaching yourself a little bit from that emotional experience that we all have when we make a photograph. You know, most of mm. most of us, I think, and I did for a long time, make a photograph. And then when we come home and we look at it on the computer, or maybe we make a print, if anyone still does that, and we look at it on the print, and we are immediately taken back to the moment of yeah. making that photograph. And that's what informs our idea that this is a mm-hmm. good photograph or one of the things, one of the false yep. things. And I think that starts to go away when you, when you look at, you know, constantly looking at other people's work in, in this way. I now look at my own work as though almost I'm looking at a book of someone else's that I need to, you know, uh, write about intelligently. And therefore I start seeing the faults and it's been really I'm not articulating maybe as well as I can, but it's been a really, really powerful experience. I mean, I'm so ruthless with my own work now. Every time I open uh, my hard drives, I delete another hundred photos or whatever, because I just, you know, I just know there's no, there's no point to them. Most people can't do that. I've always been pretty good at that in the sense that, you know, I've been photo, I've been photographing in a serious way now for just Mm. over a decade. And I have um, just under 1,500 photos in my archive. That's it. Wow, you're That's ruthless. It. And 
And and personally, I think that probably about a hundred of them will have any kind of life, mm-hmm. in, in long term life. Um, so I'm not as as ruthless as you know, sort of trying to identify that 100 photos. But I think that you know, really great photographers. Ha- you know, let's take Gary Winogrand for example. I mean, he he shot. I don't even know, like yeah. hundreds of thousands or of whatever it was. Yeah. Um, you know, large, large number of, of frames. And, you know, ultimately we probably know a hundred yeah. of his photographs and that's a best case sort of scenario. I think a lot of other photographers I could think of right away. I won't name names, but uh, famous contemporaries of Winogrand where, you know, probably there, it's, the number is 10 or mm-hmm. 25 that are actually, um, you know, reproduced um, that are, um, you know, selling well that mm-hmm. are known visually by people other than the experts, um, and so on. That photo, just I want to talk about something. Yeah, yeah, just, go ahead. I, I can see, you know, we can see each other here, and I, I the, the photo behind you with the car is that a lens yes. photograph? Yes, it is. Yes, yeah, okay. oh, I'm glad you uh, identified that. He was a wonderful guy. Yep, and I, I'm, yes. I'm trying to move yes. so you can see. It was, it was a yeah, cover I see of it now, our yeah. tenth issue, I think. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Len, Len yeah. gave me that um, photo. Like, yeah. Yeah. Len is. Len was a was a. Oh, great was he really? He was just um, such a nice man. He. Uh, yeah. He was like, just he was my father's age, and I lost my father a mm. long time ago. So it was really nice to be able to talk with somebody of that generation, and he, he was just right. that kind of guy. Right. Yeah. Yes, he was. I, I always enjoyed him. We used to go to lunch um, every now and then at the Smith on the yeah. Upper West Side, and uh, he, he wasn't as yeah. mobile, so we didn't go out and shoot much together. But we would have these lunches where we would talk about you know, street photography and, and lots of other things. And also, he would always bring his, because he used a Ricoh mm-hmm. GR, uh, the model I famously use um, and only use he started using and he would always bring it with, to the lunch and help me with, uh, get me to help him with the <laughs> yeah. settings <laughs> to reconfigure. He was always reconfiguring yeah. his settings. Yeah. That's good. Well, I'm glad you recognized his work. Of course, if you were a friend of his, you definitely would. From, from across, yeah, across the, the room. room and yes. It's teeny, <laughs> you know, this wide lens, it's on my, uh, on my, uh, uh, webcam. So, yeah. That's what you 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 aspire to as a photographer, someone to know your work uh, from across the room. If you've been able to do that, you've yes, done you all have. right. Yes, you have. And I think if somebody recognizes five of your photos, you're doing really well. Yes, I think you know. I think it's harder when um, you have a very wide aesthetic, uh, which a lot of you know photographers do because they don't like to limit themselves. Uh, and and you know that's a that's a double-edged yeah. sword, right? You you start having this signature in your look, um, in your aesthetic. I, I just interviewed Roger Ballen the other day for a piece I'm I'm doing on him, and you know his work is uh, remarkably um, dis- distinctive to the point where he mm-hmm. has his own, you know, uh, Ballen-esque aesthetic has become a thing in <clears throat> photographic criticism. It's a it's a real uh, you know, documented um, visual aesthetic that's unique to him. And 
that's great. Um, what happens though with situations like that, and I've experienced it in my work because my work is very tight in terms of visual aesthetic, at least most of the work that anybody knows, um, is that you then have to keep producing that work, or at least you feel compelled <laughs> to have to keep photographing in that way and presenting work that looks that way because that's now what people expect your work to look like. Um, it's, it's really kind of frustrating because on one hand, it's great. People start to identify your work and because all of your work looks the same, um, you know, your, your work is more identifiable, which is, you know, what we said was the thing people would, you know, strive for. Some famous photographer once said, you know, you hang a photograph on one side of the room and if somebody on the other can identify it, then, you know, that's great. Um, that's what you're looking for. And I think in a lot of ways, you know, Roger can certainly do that. And I think in a lot of ways with a lot of my work, I can do that, but it's so limiting. I go out and try to make something else. And if I'm crazy enough to, to, to show it to anybody anywhere, um, there's just no interest or the interest is that's not where you're, that's not your work. Why does your work, what are you doing? Why does it look like that? Um, it's like, it's like Bob Dylan when he went electric. What? Yes. what are you doing? <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. What's going on here? Um, and, and, you know, it, it, it's very frustrating as an artist because you want to keep trying new things. You want to expand what's going on. And um, I really feel, I, you know, honestly, I really feel trapped by it now. Um, not that I don't still do some other stuff, but nobody sees it. So you don't bother showing you know? things that are outside your outside your current style no because not no because not only have i had bad experiences doing that in the past but um also i just think you know and others have told me you know the people who sort of function as the mentors in my life i guess you know just stick with this you know like stick with the thing yeah. that um you've already been able to establish to a certain degree and keep doing that thing and it will have its moment but you know um, if you're, if you're doing too many things or you're trying to, you know, mm -hmm. be all over the place, then that's exactly where you will end yeah, up. That's true. Go with your strengths. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I see you, um, you're back on social media after taking a break. Back on Instagram. <laughs> what, yes. what was that all about? Well, it's funny, you know, my Instagram is locked right now. I've been having difficulties with Instagram. I guess I'm doing things <laughs> that they don't like. Um, so anyway, I'm, on, I'm, I'm in the process of getting back into my Instagram. But, um, and that's part of the, you know, hassle right there is that Instagram is notoriously difficult company to oh, interact with. Yes. So as long as you don't need them, you're great. But once you need them or once they decide they're going to shut you off for, you know, a minute, uh, God help you um, to, to figure out how to get through that. But listen, I mean, I used to be a big, huge critic of social media, and uh, I've softened a little bit with age, I guess. Um, you know, I think it serves its purpose. I think it 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 has a place out in the world. What bothers me a little bit, um, or there's a few things, but one is that. Uh, I'm starting to see work that I feel is produced for social media. And I don't know mm -hmm. how I feel about that. Um, it's sort of like the people who wrote the books for Oprah. 
you know, they're not ter- they're not terrible books. But when you set out to write a book that you know is going to get you into Oprah's Book Club, there's something wrong with the process, at least for me. Um, and so I see these photographs that uh, you know have sort of been shot for social media, and then the other thing is that, um, and and by the way, I don't think anybody's work really you know, like. <laughs> Are you really intending your work to have a permanent home as a as a you know two inch <laughs> by one inch you know yeah, entity like this is a weird this is a weird phenomenon um it's all right if you know somewhere that piece of work is you know let's say uh, two feet by you know four feet in a gallery and then you put it on instagram um that's a different kind of thing that's not what I'm talking about, but I'm talking about people who go out in their and, and they're on the street with their camera in one hand and their phone in the other and going through their head is how to make the best social media or Instagram photograph to get the most, whatever one gets on Instagram. I've never quite figured that out. Um, certainly I haven't, you know, gotten any dollar signs out of it. No. Um, you know, so, so you're photographing for likes. Okay. Um, that leads into the next problem, which is, I mean, what is popular and what is good? has never been the same for me because I understand at least enough art history to not mm-hmm. fall into that trap. Um, just because you've got a thousand people in the village idiot telling you that this <laughs> is a great photograph doesn't mean anything. It just means that it was a, a great photograph for the Instagram market. Um, and then the other thing I think that sort of always gets me down a little is um, the repetition in, in the work. You know, people are, people have always copied one another. Artists have copied one another mm-hmm. since the dawn of time, and and that's fine in it, in and of itself. But social media, like everything else, is so amplified, um, and there's so much of it that you know when you're looking, you're just seeing this the same photograph over and over again by different people. And I wonder about the the value in that. Even from my perspective of sitting and looking at it, I'm like, what am I doing? Like, what's you know, this is the you know, 700 umbrella photo I've looked at this afternoon. Like what's going on here? It, so it all, it all seems like a, a little bit of a, a circus to be honest, but I'm back in it and I'm in it because I think that uh, we don't have much choice. It anymore. seems like on Instagram in particular, there's a lot of pressure just to be, keep churning out work, just keep posting and posting. And then there's that too. Yeah. I mean, some of the people I follow who are, you know, wonderful photographers and I enjoy their work, but I'm not sure I need to see 15 pieces yeah. a day. And there's a few that actually do post that, you know, that kind of quantity. Um, and unfortunately it hurts them because they don't, you know, posting that frequently, I don't think they get much of a, a wide audience. Um, cause Instagram sort of, you know, starts to diminish their, their view or whatever, who, who you know, who knows how that works. Um, I'm beginning to wonder if Instagram even knows how that works, but certainly, um, you know, I think that that has has hurt some of the photographers and then other photographers have, um, who I very much admire and I think produce really, really strong work. But, you know, there's just that piece missing where, you know, the the Instagram, you know, stream is a, is a mess. It doesn't visually, you know, it's not visually cohesive. It's, there's no sort of, you know. Uh, clear brand going on or visual signature as we talked about or whatever the case may be it's just like a a stream of all kinds of disparate work 
coming from a photographer who's really great. Um, but you know, and they, they seemingly have all the, the blocks to build their house, but the house just <laughs> never got built. Uh, and I, and I think that that, you know, that's, um, that feeds back into this, this world that we're all now forced to be a part of. If we are, you know, a creative for an artist, if we're a photographer, whatever it may be, not only can we just do that thing, uh, we also have to be, if we're serious about it and want our work to, to get out there in a serious way, we also have to be business people. We also Mm -hmm. have to be marketing, uh, executives. We also have to be, um, all of these things that we're not. And so I think probably, you know, some of these, we could argue about whether they're the true artists, you know, just sort of blow off all that stuff. But the result in today's world is that they start existing in mm-hmm. a vacuum. Yes. I uh, heard Meryl Meisler say once, if, if, if you don't promote your work, nobody else will. So, you, yeah. Wonderfully put. I, wonderfully put. Yeah. Meryl's another uh, photographer yeah. I really enjoy. Uh, both as yes, a person yes. and as a photographer and 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 she's definitely right and she's worked so you know i mean she's retired now and she has the time to do mm-hmm. this as a full-time sort of endeavor and she has over the past number of years i i reviewed her first book um sassy 70s and uh so her and i have been in touch uh quite frequently over the ensuing years and i've watched sort of her unfold and um She's done a brilliant job. And I think it's because she sits down every day and makes at least half of her day about the marketing and about the public relations. And maybe uh, another smaller portion of the day is making photos or editing photos as the case may be. Yeah, she does. And and it's working well for her. And I think a lot of people with, you know, um, great work could have a similar experience if they got that other piece of the puzzle in place. And I don't pretend to have it in place, but partially because I have a, you know, a full-time day job and, um, you know, lack of interest in certain ways and different things. But, but there's no doubt if I, you know, sort of quit my day job and went working for myself nine to five uh, promoting my work, something will happen eventually, right? Um, But it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work and you have to like doing it. Yeah, and you have to like doing it, and you have to have, you know, something in the mix that's going to pay the yeah. bills. Also, if you're going to embark on something like that, like I said, you know, Merrill's retired, so that works. Um, I teach, so I have, you know, several months off of, during the year where I also have a, you know, weeks and months off during the year mm-hmm. where I have a salary, and that's wonderful because then I can nice. do this work. That's what's kept me going. Yeah, it's great, um, but. You know, to, to, for a lot of people, it's just not an option to spend that amount of time uh, promoting their work. They wouldn't have any work. So I don't know what the answer to that is either. I mean, I think that I, I did this other article sort of unrelated in a way to this conversation, but it was about mentorship and photography uh, recently. And in the conversation, I, my dear friend, Sally Davies, I don't know if you know um, Sally. No, I haven't um, met her. She'd be a wonderful sure. person to have on. Um, she's doing some documentary work these days, but she, she just did a book called The New Yorkers, um, where she went around and, and photographed uh, New Yorkers in their crazy apartments. 
um, that they've been in. Some of them have been in for 40, 50 years even. And some eccentric characters and some eccentric places. It's a wonderful book. Uh, Sally Davies, New Yorkers. And, uh, but anyway, she's, you know, traditionally been a, a street photographer. And we were um, talking about this. We got off track a little bit. I, I called her up to ask her some stuff about this article I was going to write. And we got off track a little bit. And we were just sort of talking about, was it, you know, I was interested to know, because she's been on the scene in New York since the early 80s. Um, as a, as a painter and a photographer. And I was like, you know, was it always so difficult to make meaningful connections, mm-hmm. to, to find the person to publish your book, to find the person to hang the painting in the gallery, to, um, you know, find the mentor, right. To connect with somebody who was established in, um, your genre and, and, make a meaningful connection with them. And, Cause I sort of have this nostalgia in my mind that there was a time when, you know, if you were in New York city, you could go down and, you know, hang out with Andy Warhol <laughs> at the cafe or the factory or whatever that, you know, and s- sort of have access to these people, which now seem impossible to have access to. I've been very fortunate. I must say, you know, there's a number of, you know, photographers in the world that are at the very top of their game that I can, probably reach on the phone but it's primarily because of my writing work the, mm. the work i've done over the years of, of writing and it's not necessarily just because i'm a photographer in fact i tell the the age-old story of sending joel Mayo at some of my photography and him telling me he didn't like it <laughs> <laughs> and that was our first interaction wasn't the last um, though huh? and yeah. it wasn't the last and it was interesting because you know Joel and I have maintained a communication over the years and, and quite cordial. And I, I, you know, I wouldn't say we're friends. We're not that close, but we're certainly mm-hmm. friendly with each other. And we have been ever since. And I've come to respect what he was saying, you know, and, and if you know my work and you know, Joel's work, there's no need to ha- talk about it any further. There, you know, we're just visually yeah. worlds apart and that's fine. Um, but, but I think, you know, the story I hear most often is that people, uh, you know, amateur photographers and, and emerging photographers and novice photographers, whatever word we want to use, are not able to access any of these people to sort of have meaningful uh, mentorship relationships or to maybe just get someone to help you get the door to the gallery open or find you uh, an introduction to a publisher or whatever. Um, anyway, so Sally and I are gabbing, you know, late at night on the phone about this for a while. And the the bottom line is that from her perspective, it wasn't ever really? any easier. Yeah. It was different. It was different. She was like, you know, but it, it was always a challenge. These people were always guarded and uh, not interested mm-hmm. and too busy in their own work. Um, she's like, the only difference is in the old days, you, you know, there was no internet. There was no tweeting. There was no Instagram messaging. Yeah. You had to call these people up. And she's like, you know, then you would be like, you know, talking to their yeah. answering machine, you know, and be like, Hi, you know, I'm Sally. You don't know me, but uh, yeah. click beep. Yeah. You know, like, or write them a letter. The, you know, the the experience, or write them a letter. And um, so I don't know what my main point in all of this was, but I, I just think that it's a hard world out there right now to um, to sort of make any progress to in distinguishing yourself. I think it's a really, yes, it really hard world, photography. And I, and I don't know that it was ever a lot better, but it was different. And one of the ways it was different 
is that we just didn't see the sheer quantity of photography. We didn't, we weren't inundated and visually choked the way we are uh, today. Yeah, it's, you can see street photography, well, just any photography everywhere now. Everybody's a photographer. Yeah, and everybody, you know, is a good photographer Mm -hmm. in a certain way. Do you know what I mean? In a way that they weren't able to be when they had to pick up Mm -hmm. an analog camera and figure it out. And I think that that's been a game changer. I mean, Apple, uh, I I promise I don't have stock, but, you know, I have to give it to them. Like Apple has developed a device that everyone has in their pocket that makes a beautiful photograph with no effort. You just tap and then you can print the large, decent, technically great photographs is pretty amazing and so why wouldn't anyone be a photographer in some sort of amateur sense when they when they have that ability uh the result however has been you know a lot of photographs yes there are that's that's where we come in we we curate all that stuff to boil it down to six articles a month yes you know, i was going to ask you uh, as a writer um you know, we like people who contribute to our magazine to write about their work. And with many photographers, it's like pulling teeth. A lot of photographers struggle with, <clears throat> with the craft mm-hmm. of writing. Uh, myself, I, right. it takes me forever to write anything. And any, as a writer, as a teacher, any advice you can give somebody to pull their thoughts together and put it down on paper? <laughs> Of course, it's probably for you second I'm, nature. Yeah, I mean, it, it's like any other art form or any other craft, right? You mm-hmm. um, have to practice and sort of, you know, you're not so great in the beginning and you get better, hopefully, as one spends more time with it and moves along. Um, it, you know, I've always struggled over the years about whether or not to take a, a degree in mm-hmm. writing. Um, and I it just recently I've been, you know, again, accepted at Hopkins, Johns Hopkins to do a nonfiction writing program there. Um, and, and again, I've sort of deferred or, you know, I deferred technically, but I'm sort of deciding not to do it in my mind. And it's because I think that um, even though I teach creative writing during the day, I think that it's not really something that's mm. well taught. Uh, it's, it's like photography. You can teach a certain Mm -hmm. few things. Um, but, but really someone has to just practice it and has to be immersed in it and, and for a sustained period of time, and then things should improve. But that takes a lot of, just like your photography takes a lot of work to, you know, to, to get the way you want it. Your writing will be the same kind of game. And so I understand why a lot of, you know, artists in general, um, you know, don't write well because they don't have time to devote mm-hmm. to a, another craft, right? <clears throat> so, and and maybe they don't need to necessarily either. Um, yeah, it's interesting. When, you know, I interview a lot of photographers, obviously, uh, and, and all, I do all writing. You do podcasts, which are great because you know it's it is not so much editing going on. I mean, it, there's some little bit audio editing going like, on. I don't yeah. mean to, I don't mean yeah, it's yeah. not like you're editing sentences or it's not necessarily like someone has sent you an incomprehensible 
uh, <laughs> nine page ramble, which I just, which I just received this morning. And I hope the person doesn't hear this and connect the dots, but um, you know, but it, it's like somewhere in there in that, you know, those nine pages of hieroglyphics, I will be able to extract something that will represent an interview. Um, but it's, it's not fun, you know? Um, and this poor person, uh, is just not a writer in any way or shape or form. Nine pages. And, um, that's a lot to go through. Yeah. And it, 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 yeah. And, and I didn't see a sentence anywhere. So, you know, it's hard, it's hard, but I get it. They just, you know, didn't want to take the time to make that into something presentable because it would have taken them maybe four times longer or six times longer than it did. And so I'm thankful that they just took the time they did to get me some stuff and I'll work with it because that's what I do. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, and related to this, interesting, I'll just mention one other thing that popped in my mind, which is that I'm seeing a lot more writing with yeah. photography these days, especially from publishers and it's sort of annoying <laughs> me a little bit because, um, you know, I'm not necessarily interested in sitting down and reading yeah. a book when I'm supposed mm -hmm. to be reviewing photography, right? And it's a sort of, I sort of feel like, you know, for better or worse, there the photograph is. Explanation not required. Um, I, I don't really care, to be honest, uh, what the photographer thinks the value of this photograph is, because whatever they're thinking it is, is probably... Um, got nothing to do with anything so why why put that in there like all of a sudden there seems to be in 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 the publishing world especially there seems to be this idea that that photography needs to be defended that the photography they're publishing now needs to be defended with words and i get it because it's going back to the you know nine thousand photography books being released every day or whatever the quantity is um and so everyone's trying to justify why this is the you know, why this was published and why this is a good book. But I think that has to be done with the work visually. If the photography is strong enough, there'll be no questions. Um, if it's bad photography, then yeah, there will be questions like, why did you publish this crap? But nothing you're going to say in the narrative it's not is going to change that yeah. affect my view. It's not going to change that. Um, so I'm a little, I hope this trend wears off and goes away again. And we get back to art monographs being full of art and not full of writing by people who aren't writers because it, it really isn't attractive. Um, but there you have it. I want to ask you something. I'm not sure how to phrase this, but when I hear you speak about other people's work, about your opinion, you know, what it means, whatever you say it in plain English that makes sense. Sometimes other people, we, I hear them talking or critiquing work, they make no sense at all. It's, it's like another language, artists speak, or I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. I do. Um, What's with that? Yeah, I mean, I've always <laughs> been, well, I think that, you know, I think that like, like anything else, we could use a law as a good example, right? Um, you know, the law is written in a way that, uh, keeps you know a tight circle around the people who can make sense of it and talk about it and that way we don't have lay people sort of muscling in on the lawyers because they can't even get the conversation going and i think the same sort of thing is true in in 
in art criticism, um, you know, it, it, there's a there's a formalized language around it, so that mainly constructed to keep people out, or to reinforce um, the intellectual superiority of the person who's you know delivering the oratory on someone's work, um, and and no doubt, you know, what you're hearing does make sense um, to the people who have the right uh, knowledge and yeah. the right lexicon and the right you know so on to to deal with this, but. I wonder how many people are, you know, find that accessible. As you said, mm -hmm. you, you know, it's, it can be difficult to understand. So the reason I don't do that, one of the reasons I don't do that is because I don't want to talk to six other people. You know, it's like, it's, it's like in academics, mm -hmm. I never yeah. wrote that way either. Um, and, and, and the, the, my, the first grad degree I did in, in Montreal way back, I had a really good um, um, advisor and you know, he said, just write in plain, simple English sentences, um, have the research be solid as a rock, but then write about it as plainly as you can write. And what will happen is more people will care about what you've written, more people will read it. And of course, in the academic world, we're talking about going from six to 12, but that's a big mm -hmm. jump. That's a hundred percent. Right. So, um, it, it does make sense, I think, to to speak in a way that people uh, have access to and can understand and can relate to. And I think you can say a lot of the same things um, about, ultimately, uh, we're saying the same things about the work. We're just using more accessible yeah, it language. It reminds me of, well, I just finished a book, took place in the year 1000. And there were the priests, and the priests gave mass in Latin. Nobody could understand them. They they spoke in Latin to each other. The everyday person had no access to that. Maybe the same thing. Yeah, and the message sort of at that time was, um, don't worry about yeah. it, just believe it. And <laughs> I think that the same, you know, the same message is, is the one at play here, right? Don't worry about it, really. Just believe what I'm saying. If I tell you this is good work, it's good work. And the fact that you can't understand why is your problem. But I'm, I don't think that that's, you know, I mean, I don't think priests are getting away with that too much or, or too much of anything oh, anymore. God. And I don't think that, <laughs> and I don't think that art critics are getting away with as much of that um, anymore either. I mean, people, do people even read at all anymore? I mean, I don't the know. Bullet I mean, points. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, I saw the University of Edinburgh was uh, designing a, an online course, how to read a novel. And I thought, okay, is that really where we've <laughs> arrived? Um, I would, I'd be interested to take the course just to know like how that, how they spend X number of hours filling up that course on a topic about how to read a novel. But, you know, it, 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 it's a real thing. People don't have, you know, I do a lot of writing for websites and magazines and things. Magazines are not as big a problem, but websites are like this, the, the guidelines they give you are almost comical. You know, if the paragraph yeah. has more than, you know, six lines, you need to put something, you need to break it up yeah. or people can't read it. I mean, that's basically the language that yeah, they, they give you. And some, and some websites force you, like you can't have a paragraph that's more than six sentences. And I'm thinking like, when did this become a thing? Right? Like, this is, this is one of these things like never, you never start a sentence with and or because, you know, all those grade school teachers should be rounded up and sent to the country and re-educated. 
you know, because that wasn't true. And this isn't true. You can have a, a paragraph that has 12 sentences and anyone who's, you know, interested is able to read it, I'm sure. Of course. Right. So part of the part of the problem is feeding into um, the problem and, and designing stuff that that is, uh, you know, that doesn't have any substantial content. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's going to be, you know, God bless the people at the Atlantic. <laughs> yeah. <you know? laughs> long, long form journalism is uh, got a target yeah, on its head. It's I still think. there. It's still there. It is. And it is. And there are still people there that will that will read it. There always will be, uh, you know, people are still writing on typewriters, too. But I just think that the the, the masses, as we'll call them, um, are not are not reading uh, in in the same way that they were a generation ago. No. And, uh, you know, er everything changes. And we, I I try not to, I've I've taught history over the years and I have learned, the one thing I've learned from teaching history is that, um, you know, to try and not fall into the trap of believing that things were any different. Um, You know, that things really are changing because, that's very seldom true. <clears throat> things might be different, but when it, they're boiled down to their essential components, things are always sort of the same or in some kind of cycle, mm-hmm. uh, which is point. a repetitive cycle. So, you know, there was probably a time uh, before when people thought that the world was going to hell because people couldn't read more than six <laughs> sentences in a paragraph. It might have been back in the Latin <laughs> times. Who knows? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I want to ask you one more thing about the, about gear. You know, our our gear just is like. I mean, it change. You're talking about change. It changes constantly. Every month, there's some new. You know, some new gadget on the market. The camera has all this extra functionality, and then I see people I know shoot Leica, which is always very simple, and. And then, you know, during the pandemic, I've gone back and looked at a lot of my old work and I pulled something out I've forgotten about and I go, hey, this is pretty good. I've got to, I've got to do something with this. I might've shot it 12 years ago on a, you know, a a camera that's six megapixels or whatever. It's still good. (laughs) Do I need to keep buying all this stuff? (laughs) And so I've, I've decided to be happy with what I have. You know, a five-year-old camera or a four-year-old camera. I think that's wonderful. I mean, um, m- yeah. my answer is no. You, you know, you don't have to keep buying this stuff. I mean, it's a very clear answer um, for me, and that, and that I think is is partly because, um, you know, what what are the new features actually giving you? Like, what is actually changing in your work? Nothing. You know, now keep in mind, I, I still shoot with the Ricoh GR Digital 4 model, which is 10 megapixels. Um, and I shoot, shoot in 3.2, which is actually down to 9 megapixels. So, so all of my work is mm-hmm. still in 9 megapixels. Like, that's the way it is. Um, you know, and once in a while, someone will ask me for a photo of some crazy size, and I'm like, yeah, that's not going to happen. But but normally, it's it's never an issue. It's never a thing. You know, like, I'm not making billboards. I don't need you know, 50 megapixels or whatever. Um, 
and and I know some you know a couple of friends who who shoot you know fantastically large files, and their homes are full yeah. of hard drives. Uh, you know, I don't have that problem. <laughs> um, you know, I have 1500 pictures at nine mega- megapixels, so I'm doing fine. Yeah, keep that but, on a thumb drive. Um, yeah, exactly. I think that a lot of this is just marketing and it, it's exciting because, you know, these are the things we play with. These are our toys as photographers. So I get it. Um, and I've, you know, bought a lot of gear over the years to, just play around with. I mean, I have other cameras. It's just that I don't use them for the work that I consider my real work. But um, I even like using iPhone. You know, when I go out for a walk, I I use the iPhone to shoot photos because there's so many apps on there and there's so many apps on there that mimic all these old cameras. It's fun to use. And, um, you know, so I, I, I don't know. And then the other thing too is that, like, is it really worth it? In the analog era, for example, buying a Leica was worth it because you yeah, couldn't wear it for years. Out. It was built. It was built like a tank. You could, you know, do a little bit of minor maintenance, and you could give this to the next generation. Look at that uh, M8 or whatever. You know, the first digital one there was called. Um, it's junk, right? Like, it, you, you, God help you if the cloud goes over the sun, you you'll get so much grain in the photo you can't even read the photograph. So, you know, those cameras that people, you know, those M8s that people paid, you know, extraordinary money for um, only a decade ago are already junk, right? So I think that um, the the argument to buy these really, really expensive mm-hmm. digital cameras is becoming a difficult argument to make any sense with. If you're a commercial mm-hmm. photographer, that's a little different. and so. Um, I, we won't get into that, but I think commercial photographers have a different set of requirements and they have to keep up with industry, you know, standards and so on and so forth. And they also have money to blow on, you know, what's, what's a $7,000 camera? It's one shoot, right. And you've paid for your camera. So no problem, but people who are, you know, making street photography and people who are, you know, um, doing this at on some level in, you know, as a hobby, Really, I think your money would be better spent mm-hmm. traveling uh, and getting access to photograph things that other people may mm-hmm. not be able or to taking a workshop access. with somebody you respect. Or taking a workshop. Um, you know, I have a few things to say there, too, but let's not. <laughs> oh, go why there. not? No. Um, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Well, you know, um, we'll 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 keep things <laughs> brief here, but I in terms of staying on topic about the camera, I, I just think the bottom line is, um, you know, the the money and the energy is always going to be better spent finding access to subject matter that others will have a harder time accessing. That's going to make you better photo uh, photography than having yeah. the more expensive camera. Um, you know, that's always my advice, actually, is, it, you know, to anyone, how do I make better photographs? find better things to photograph. That's always my advice because it sounds simple, but you know what? Not very many people do it and myself included. You know, I go out and I walk on the street and make photographs and I know that that's going to be an enormous challenge because everyone is walking on the street making photographs or walking on the street seeing the things I'm making photographs of. 
And that will always be a monumental challenge. But guess what? If I could figure out how to get myself into Rikers for a day on the outside, <laughs> yeah, not on the that's inside. That's easier, actually. Uh, on the right, on the right, yeah. on the right side of the bars, right with the camera, um, I could I could go over there and and, and probably shoot, you know, uh, with my eyes closed and make a book that would be interesting and that would sell, because the access is so restricted. So this, you know, you want to make better photography, you find better things to photograph. That's an excellent point. So tell us, Michael. Why not? Uh, where can people find out more about you? Well, I have a very, That's very good. basic website um, at uh, michaelsweetphotography.com. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I try to put something new there once in a while or update the, the selection of photographs that are there. But really, it's just a place for people yeah. to find the social buttons and to email me if they want to message me, which is great. Always love to hear from people. Um, or uh, my Instagram, if it ever comes back, <laughs> which is uh, at Michael Ernest Sweet on Instagram. And uh, hopefully it will be back. And I'm also on Twitter again, um, uh, Michael Sweet NYC. And I use Twitter, you know, because I, I, when I write about yeah. someone's work or if I'm promoting someone's book, I like to try to get it out there. I just started using Twitter, so I have, you know, no followers. But, um, or, anything going on there but i plan to start using that more and more as a way to help uh you know when i've when i've written an, an article or a book review to help get it out yeah, there makes sense um it's kind of like where we put our press releases these days right no one writes a press release anymore we yep. just write tweets so i figured i had to get back into the game at twitter as well now that trump is gone it should be a you know a little easier to yeah maybe i'll play, maybe i'll start using twitter. twitter again myself I have an account, I just don't use it. <laughs> right. All right. Well, hey, thank you very much. Appreciate you coming on. Always appreciate being on, Bob. And I'm, I'm uh, uh, sorry to hear yeah. that you're a little bit under the weather. Hopefully yeah, actually, I've soon. been feeling better as we um, talk. I just, of course, you don't know. I got my second second COVID shot two days ago. I was sick as a dog yesterday. I'm starting to starting to get normal again. I think it's because I was drinking Gatorade. I need the electrolytes. <laughs> That'll help. Yeah. Yes, keep the electrolytes. Exactly. Yes. Well, I did all the talking mm, and I Perfectly fine. Um, More of you I, or less I'm, of me is always a good thing. I'm a, I'm a teacher. You know, we're, we're paid to listen to ourselves. <laughs> That's just the way it is. <laughs> uh, but nice to be here, Bob, genuinely. Uh, genuinely, it's always nice to be here. Thank you for having me.